Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight we have a great show lined up um, with somebody from the team for Rethink Afghanistan, an excellent film I actually just finished watching today. It's actually in a bunch of little parts, and it really exposes some of the horrors and problems of the Afghan war. Uh, I want to thank everybody that pulled together and helped get donations together for V Radio last month. I have brought up the new, do it, new donation bar for next month, hoping to get a head start on it this time since it happened so late last time. If you want to help us out, you can go to vradio.org. That's v-radio.org, where you can also uh, check out the archives of previous shows, check out my must-see TV list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that I think are really critical to understanding this direction. Um, now, that being said, I'm going to go ahead and bring on my guest, uh, Mr. Derek Crow. Uh, please introduce yourself, Mr. Crow. Hi, my name is Derek Crow. I'm the political director for Rethink Afghanistan, and I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. Um, well, as I usually do with most of my guests, can you um, let my guests know what got you started in activism? I mean, basically, what, meant you, what made you go from average Joe to somebody really concerned about what's going on in the world? Well, um, it's kind of a long story, but I guess we got an hour, so that's great. <laughs> um, I, uh, my, my, I've always been interested in politics from a young age, and I, I went into the workforce originally as a field manager for a congressional campaign in a very moderate Democratic district in Texas that was subsequently redistricted out of existence by Tom DeLay's famous redistricting fiasco a few years ago. Um, and, and that experience, I would say, radicalized me somewhat in politics towards the left after having a really strong negative experience at the hands of the right-wing electoral machine in this country. Um, and from there, I went to work for Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi uh, for about a year. And during that time, Hurricane Katrina also hit. And, and just immediately prior to that, all, obviously, we had gone to war in Iraq. And those experiences, combined with the way the Bush administration misused the language of my faith to justify some really ugly adventures in the world, really pushed me towards activism and, and trying to get beyond just working for a, a member of Congress or something like that as a way of expressing my political views. Uh, from there... My wife and I, uh, I, my wife's name is Laurie, we both became ardent pacifists during this time after watching what was happening with the Iraq War. Um, and when we decided to leave Washington and go into a more activist uh, line of work, uh, the, the reason that we did that was because the way the Democrats were on one hand opposing the Iraq War, but basically arguing that it was all right to bomb people in Afghanistan and we just couldn't, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't make that work in our minds or with our philosophies. So from there I got involved with, from that frustration with a group of online writers that called itself the Get Afghanistan Right Coalition at the beginning of last year. Right. And we're really pushing against what we saw as a almost inevitable march to an escalation uh, due to President Obama's election, and because he, you know, he had promised to add a, a certain number of troops 
nothing remotely approaching what he's added since then. But we really wanted to try to get people to stop and rethink that policy. And that's how I got in touch with Brave New Foundation, who has since who put out around that time the Rethink Afghanistan documentary, which was really one of the first documentary pieces that second-guessed the conventional wisdom that Afghanistan was the good war. And my work for them, uh, first I started as a blog fellow there. They have a really neat, innovative program where they, they pay up-and-coming voices in the blogosphere to write on a topic that they're passionate about, and mine, obviously, was Afghanistan. And when a position became available at Brave New Foundation, I took it working almost exclusively on the Rethink Afghanistan campaign. And that, that brings us pretty current. I'm, when, when, it, when it comes to being outside of work, I'm also a trained uh, nonviolence facilitator for social action trainings. And my, my passion has really become trying to spread the word and the education about the power of nonviolence to make social change. Well, that's uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, when, whenever I think uh, nonviolence and that, I, I usually think of the Quakers or the Society of Friends. Do you sure. guys ever work with any of those people? We have some contact with them. We're just now, this year, establishing a presence in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the Friends do amazing work when it comes to peace issues in Washington, D.C. And, and I would say that some of the Quaker and Mennonite writers that wrote on the issue of violence, especially uh, uh, John Howard Yoder, were really influential in influencing my view that my, my personal faith could not be reconciled with, with a foreign policy that thought that people in the United States had less intrinsic value than those uh, overseas, and therefore we could conduct wars in their backyard that killed their civilians as a way of protecting ours. I just couldn't make that work. That's, you know, that's interesting, actually, um, because I remember thinking that same thing, because you, you see the extreme Christian right, for example, and, you know, we don't have to get too far into this if it's uh, <laughs> um, an uncomfortable subject, but... The Christian, I'm fine with it. We can talk about this as much as you want, sure. Sure. The, well, the Christian right um, has a tendency to um, find weird ways to justify war in the name of God. You hear, like, Sarah Palin say, you know, the war in Iraq is God's war. Uh, you know, you hear, um, you know, G George Bush claims that God told him to invade Iraq, stuff like that. You know, and my brother actually is involved with the ministry, you know, the more conventional ministry. And, you know, they're teaching him that, you know, Muslims are, you know, terrible and they want to kill all Christians and all this stuff. And... And I'm not saying there are not extremist Muslims who hold ideas like this, but I actually was very heavily impacted by my experiences when I went to a website called Islam.com and actually asked questions of the Muslims and why, you know, at least that were there and why they felt the way they did. And I also met a Muslim girl once when I was working at a restaurant, and she explained a lot of things to me. I've talked about it on other shows, but, you know, it just – one of the things I will repeat that she said is that when you study history – it's just maybe perhaps Islam's turn to be abused. It's not that Christianity wasn't abused before. You know, you could take uh, the Shinto, you know, the Japanese religion, how they, you know, convinced that those are the first suicide bombers when you think about it with the kamikaze pilots. Sure. You know, and, and we think of it, we, we forget these things, you know, when we're thinking about the fact that it's just religion being abused in one way or another. And, 
every religion's got some kind of way that you could twist it around to get what you know something bad out of it. I just I understand where you're coming from. I myself kind of lean towards you know atheism and you know agnosticism, but as a former Christian, I, it just makes me chuckle to think that somehow people could read the Bible and interpret it in a way that was not uh, did not lead directly to pacifism. At least, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you think about, and I totally understand anyone's aversion to Christianity when it comes to looking at the way that that we've conducted ourselves these last few years as a, as a community in the United States and, and the way that, I mean, you're probably familiar with this statistic that Christians in the United States were more likely to support torture um, than non-Christians during the Bush administration. Right. That shows that there's something deeply wrong here with our community because when in the first three centuries of Christianity, you couldn't even be baptized if you held a position with the government that could be responsible for killing someone. If, if you even wore the purple in the Roman uh, administration and, and could rule on life and death, you were not even they, they, you would be rejected by the church for baptism. Um, and, and since then, we've, we've managed to do a really good job finding loopholes or creating them out of whole cloth that gets us away from the really tough parts of the teachings of the person that we supposedly think is, is you know, the epitome of what it means to live a, a good and righteous and godly life. But, I mean, like you said, just about anything can be twisted this way. If you think about Gandhi's Swaraj, there were folks there who, towards the end, would take up pitchforks and torches in India and attack British folks and say Gandhi's Swaraj has come. You know, Swaraj means independence, and, and just people that that with 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 the nationalist impulse took the banner of something that was much beloved and totally perverted it into something that that the uh, main driving force behind it wouldn't recognize. It, within that community, actually, you mentioned Islam. There was a man that was called the uh, the the Muslim Gandhi, whose name was Abdul Ghaffar Khan, and he was actually a Pashtun man from the Northwest tribal region that you hear so much about now. And he founded a sect there called the Servants of God. That's the English translation, obviously. But they were one of the most militant, nonviolent, radical factions within Gandhi's movement. They actually drilled like they were in the military to prepare for nonviolent actions and civil disobedience. And they were targeted mercilessly by the British. They were driven into cold rivers in the wintertime. Their crops were burned. Oil was poured on the grain stores. But they, they took that abuse, often holding up a Quran saying, God is great. And, and I think that if, if we'll get a little bit outside of our um, tendency to view Western culture as the, as the epitome of civilization. We, have, we do have a lot to learn from the heritage of Islam, even in the last century, um, when it comes to living peaceful lives of, of active community engagement. Okay. Well, yeah, I absolutely see where you're coming from, and I, I thank you for adding that extra information. I wasn't aware of any um, Muslim pacifists. That's really interesting. Um, it, and uh, it, actually, you know, just I guess, um, you know, 
having watched the show, uh, the, basically the film you guys put together, uh, some of the scenes that I would say bothered me the most was the stuff about the children dying, uh, just the different ways the kids are getting killed and civilians are getting killed. And, and the fact that it, it's, it's interesting how history repeats itself. Um, you know, Afghanistan, especially the situation with, you know, the, the terrain and how difficult it is to militarily win such a conflict in such a conventional method. And, you know, then we have all these people dying and we're obviously losing the hearts and minds. Did we not learn anything from Vietnam? You know, it's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, apparently we did learn some things, and we learned all the wrong lessons. Um, what we, I mean, as a country, I, we, we thought we learned that you couldn't send several hundred thousand people overseas to fight a war that people didn't support. But what the military took from that, and you'll see this playing out when it comes to pushing a counterinsurgency doctrine, is the importance of working and manipulating the media here in the United States to set political conditions that make war more possible. The person we we just put in charge over there in Afghanistan, uh, uh, you know, General Petraeus, he is a master of working the media and the political circuit. When when he was in Iraq, folks often made jokes that you had to bring extra chairs wherever he went for the journalists he would bring in his trail. And that is something that I think he probably took looking at the experience in Vietnam he handled the press like a master. And, and Sammy McChrystal, until his last gin, ginormous faux pas there, also did the same thing and even managed to set conditions here that made it almost inevitable that we were going to escalate just through the manipulation of the media. But when you talk about civilian casualties, I mean, it's, it's totally egregious. We, we just uh, got this report out from WikiLeaks today, and there are these vignettes of just awful human tragedy caused by, you know, people reacting in a war zone in a way that not only undermines American security, but really undermines our integrity as a nation. And it really is tragic. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, um, that's, uh, you know, the, the raw footage is another thing that really strikes me. There's actually a couple of films. Uh, there's one that I, I Put up on re-put up on YouTube. I called the Lives of the Iraq War, and it shows a lot of footage of the people in Iraq getting killed. And you know, like I remember one scene in particular. There's a like the street literally has a huge puddle of blood in it. Yeah. Uh, a few where there's you know children dying, and one of them in particular that really you know bugged me is the one where you got this American soldier cradling the dead body of a child that's probably about the same age as my daughter. Um, you know, and it's. It really is something, you know, because we, I actually did a show uh, with the maker of the film and writer of the book, Militainment Incorporated, just a few shows ago. Are you familiar? I'm not familiar with that, but I'm really interested in it. Yeah, you should check it out. You can watch that for free on Google Video as well. But um, basically, uh, he talked about how it's the clean war now. You know, we, we don't show that kind of footage anymore because that's the stuff that led to all of the, the public outcry of the Vietnam War is that kind of footage would get out. And, you know, it's um, one of the, you know, really powerful aspects, and this is another thing that, you know, it occurred to me while I was watching those film clips, was uh, there was a film about Iraq, and it wasn't really directly about the war. It was actually more about music, but it was called Message from Baghdad, and it was about a rock band that existed in Iraq. And this film had a unique capacity to humanize the Iraqi people to me because they all spoke English. They all were interested in the same kind of music as I was. 
and, you know, they all played the same video games I did, and it really, really impacted me, even though it wasn't a film as much about military policies. I mean, it wasn't, for example, my favorite film about Iraq is, is No End in Sight. Have you seen that? That's a phenomenal film. Really yeah, that, that film really, really makes me mad. But this, this film, Message from Baghdad, is about a, a heavy metal band called Akrasakata, and they're extremely talented, but the, the thing about it that was interesting is you're watching this, what's basically like a rockumentary that happens to have a war going on in the middle of it. And like, you know, you're getting in with these kids. They're like, they were people I would hang out with. You know, they were people I could just expect to see sitting on my couch playing my Xbox. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And it's, it's, that's an aspect of the Iraqi people I had never seen before. And the reason that I, I bring this up is I was thinking about that while I was watching Rethink Afghanistan. You're, you're looking at that, that poor old woman who's got like five orphans from the various, like, you know, the parents that were related to her that had died and she has no way to take care of them and she's sick and she's dying herself. And, you know, but she's speaking in another language, um, you know, and it, in Arabic, particularly when they're upset, sounds kind of, uh, well, I guess I'm going to say strange, um, and so it doesn't translate the same. It almost makes you makes it easier for people to dehumanize them, to not really think of them as people, um, you know. And it's it's one of the reasons why I felt, you know, maybe you'd almost have even more luck if it was a dramatization film where you just hired a bunch of Arabic actors to play the part and speak English the whole time. Maybe then people would get it, you know. Maybe they would really understand. Um, yeah, I, I think you've got a point that the um, the language barrier um, between people is, is a, an essential factor in being able to dehumanize them. And I think that's one of the things that it makes it extremely difficult to, to do some of the work we try to do at Rethink Afghanistan uh, to show people the human cost of the war. Um, I mean, and, and if you think about not only the language barrier, but the extreme poverty, um, such that when you look at an Afghan village, often you don't recognize yourself there because the surroundings are so impoverished, right? That's just not how you live in the United States. I mean, you know, there aren't that many people, I mean, there are people in poverty, in deep poverty in the United States, don't get me wrong, but oftentimes you don't see dwellings that have wet mud floors that were, that were built literally from just stacking mud until it formed a rough square. I mean, that, that level of poverty is really hard for us to relate to. And when you, when you see that, there, there are elements, though, if, if, if you get to know folks in Afghanistan, um, it becomes really difficult to view that kind of footage, though. I, one of the hardest weeks we had here at Rethink Afghanistan, we were supporting the work of a journalist named Jerome Starkey there who was just taking an absolute beating from NATO's public affairs office because he had the temerity to question the official story about a night raid that had gone horribly wrong. And they killed uh, a local district police officer who had actually trained with the Americans there at Gardez his, and they killed his brother, and they killed three women, two of which were pregnant, and they tried to cover it up in all sorts of horrible ways. And I won't, um, I won't, I'll, I'll spare you the gory details of it, but we were able to obtain from our work with him and from our work with local journalists there, we have a nice network of, of stringers and a woman named Anita who's doing great work bringing us footage. 
Um, we were able to obtain the film of the party just before the night raid interrupted it. And in that scene, you can see um, you can see the police officer very clearly. He's dancing. They're having a celebration. They're celebrating the birth of a young boy into their family. Um, and they're singing and they're dancing. And you can recognize yourself in that. I mean, the, the, they're in a room that's not unlike a lot of, of family rooms here in the United States. And the next thing you'll see in our video is the aftermath of the night raid. We were able to obtain video from the scene while the troops were still there. That's the time period where um, the, the video occurs. And it, it is really a wrenching uh, scene, and it really points out the total inhumanity of thinking that war is going to help somebody. I mean, that, that, that week at work is probably the hardest week I've had as an activist, I would say. Well, you know, and I, I understand, and, and particularly when you talk about, you know, people's relatives dying, I don't, I don't know that people necessarily really uh, put a face on that. I, I don't know that they really think about it. You know, that, that, you know, what does that mean? You know, you're just, you're seeing it on television. So it's, it's filtered reality and it's these strange people. They don't look like me. They don't dress like me. It almost lets you think that they're a different species, you know, yeah. you know, and it's, it's like, they're not, it's like they're not human. And then you start to think about the way the British empire used to regard other races and, I mean, they're not the only people by any means, but like, you know, when you were talking about Gandhi, it made me think about, you know, the way the British Empire regarded people, you know, the blacks in South Africa and, you know, the people of India, you know, and well, their cultures are different, their, their mannerisms are different. So they, you know, it doesn't even register to you that you've done any kind of crime against humanity because you don't even think of them as human, you know, and it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we end up doing these terrible things to them because of that. And, and, and as, you know, as I said, did we learn anything from Vietnam? I remember a scene from the movie Platoon where, wherein, uh, you know, they go to this village, they suspect maybe some of the people there might be, you know, VC. So they get it in their heads after, you know, massacring one of the matriarchs of the village in front of their children that maybe they should just burn the whole village down just in case. And as they're walking away, the first thing that pops into my head, I was actually kind of young when I watched this film. I was like 13. I was like, well, if they weren't BC before, they certainly are now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I don't, just one of the things that always occurs to me when we talk about this Gardez night raid, um, you know, they're there celebrating the birth of a young boy who now every year on his birthday is going to hear this story about the Americans who busted in and killed several of his female relatives, two of which were about to have babies, and his father and his, and his uncle. And I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say that that kid's life is in any way predetermined, but the question I like to ask people would be, would there be any American that would be safe from you if that were you? I mean, if, if you think of the idea of growing up in a country where you hear that story once a year and you see the people, people in the broadest sense who are responsible for that, walking around your country dressed like aliens, and they weren't, not only were they not being punished, but they were largely running the show. I don't know many people from whom those guys would be safe. I mean, that, that to me points up not only the human tragedy, but the intense counterproductive uh, uh, effect 
that our conducting a decade-long brutal policy over there is going to have on our national security. That's yeah, yeah, I know that, and it certainly isn't. If people hate us, the solution is not to do things that'll make them hate us more. And they don't. The media really does not want that attitude portrayed. It's like I remember during Ron Paul's campaign for president. You know, he corrected you know one of the other presidential candidates in one of the earliest debates and said. They don't attack us because we're free. You know, they attack us because we've been bombing Iraq for like 10 years. You know, we, you know, we constantly interfere in their lives and their foreign policy. And then they took what he said and then turned it into, oh, he's a 9-11 truther, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. because they don't want anybody to think, you know, uh-oh, he's speaking logic. We better shut that guy up. And, you know, the funny thing is, they're right, it is a threat because it was that moment, actually, that very moment that is the reason when I, when I tell my story – it was that speech in particular where Ron Paul started pointing out that just the reality of it, you know, why do they hate us? You know, and I said, you know, that was the moment that made me think, wait a minute, this politician is speaking the truth. I didn't think that was even possible. And that's actually what got me to kind of crack out of my shell and actually, you know, poke into the world. Um, and yeah. I go ahead. I was just going to say, I really understand that because I, I, I similarly have a lot of affection for some of the statements that Paul said at that time. Um, he, I disagree with Ron Paul on a lot of things, but I will say I will always hold him in at least some high regard because he stood on the floor of the House of Representatives uh, at the height of the madness of the Iraq War and completely eviscerated the kind of right-wing pseudo-religious jingoism that was going on. And just by quoting a simple line of scripture, he just said, I thought the blessed were the peacemakers. And he said, you guys are not making peace. And I just, I remember that moment I was working in Congress at the time as a staffer. And I just remember, wow, that kind of moral courage is, is pretty rare. And, and you know, I, him and I wouldn't agree on much politically besides foreign policy, but that moment also kind of made an impact on me. And I'm, I'm glad you brought him up because he's been pretty solid on the Afghanistan war from the beginning. Yeah, he's. I mean, I agree with you. I'm not agreeing with him about everything. Um, I mean, I'm. I'm not. I, w- I went through my libertarian phase. I'm sure. out of it now. Um, Dennis Kucinich uh, is another good congressman. I think. Uh, I actually, when you said you worked on a campaign, I actually worked on Senator Senator Mike Gravel's campaign for president. Oh wow! He had those fantastic YouTube commercials. That were almost yeah. Right. Yep. And it was a friend of mine who made those for him. And it was uh, the thing about him though is that he was another one of those guys who just got up and did not jerk around and. Uh, what brought him back into politics was was that he was one of the the big guys, anti-Vietnam guys. He got you know the draft ended, and he read the Pentagon Papers into public record, you know. And he looked at Iraq and Afghanistan and was like, oh great, you know, here we go again, you know. Yeah. He was, you know he's like in his 70s, and he you know it was it was a lot. To, it took a lot out of him to get back into politics, but he just he could not stand by and let that happen again without you know doing his thing and trying to speak out against it. And, but in any case, you know, it's, uh, I think that another major issue that we've really got to talk about because, you know, my listeners particularly are part, usually part of the zeitgeist movement, and we like to link things directly to money. So where is the money being made in Afghanistan? Oh, my. Well, somebody's making it hand over fist. Um, there are lots of ways that you can go to Afghanistan and become fabulously wealthy. One is to become a private contractor <laughs> um, that, that does outsourced work for the U.S. military. 
um, there is a, or for the State Department for that matter, um, you know, the infamous Blackwater teams are there, the Wagon Hut guys are there, and they're making money hand over fist. But if you really want to make money in Afghanistan, you got to get yourself elected to uh, an executive position there. Our money is ending up so much in the hands of corrupt officials and corrupt local kingpins. Um, and in some ways, if you want to get rich, I don't know if we get rich this way, but the Taliban are making a pretty good killing off of our defense supplemental money. I don't know if your listeners have heard this or not, there was a report put out by Representative Tierney recently that tried to track where that money was going from the defense supplemental. And what he found was a lot of that money that we're sending over there that we're about to vote on actually again this week is ending up in the hands of these local private contractors who then pay protection money to the Taliban nearby not to attack them. And what they found was that the money that that the Taliban were making off that racket was comparable to the money that they made from taxing opium sales. So when you hear folks run down, you know, or imply that uh, the Taliban are making all their money off of opium, keep in mind, your tax dollars are funding them to a very similar tune. But, you know, you've got folks that are making a killing. The the Special Inspector General uh, for Afghanistan Reconstruction just put out one report. Construction companies over there are making a killing. For example, in Kandahar, the uh, SIGR, that's the the acronym for that Special Inspector General. SIGR found that they, because they were uh, failing to implement a master plan on the construction, they were duplicating things like sewer lines and plumbing and getting paid for it in buildings that we were constructing supposedly to hand over to the ANA. And there's no way they could maintain those buildings. And if they stayed in them, they'd probably die in the first attack because they put the, the armory right next to the barracks. So any, any round that landed in that complex would blow up not just the armory, but also the people sleeping next door. So if, if you want to make a lot of money, you got to go be a construction worker or a construction kingpin over there um, or, a, uh, or an elected official. That's a, pretty good, that's a pretty good racket over there. Yeah, that's, you know, and um, K, yeah, you said KBR, Halliburton, Blackwater. Um, They're doing pretty well. And there's folks, smaller contractors like Wackenhut who get paid apparently to have frat parties. You might have seen those. Uh, photographs that were so embarrassing to Americans around the world where they were supposed to be guarding State Department officials and were out there having gigantic Lord of the Flies parties where clothing was apparently optional. I mean, they were making a good money there, too. That's, yeah, yeah. and now I've I've heard rumors about the the opium trade in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Would you want to comment on that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, we are rightly concerned in the United States by the, the amount of opium that is coming out of Afghanistan, but folks should realize that opium production in Afghanistan has skyrocketed since we started our invasion there. And it's kind of a canard to point up that it goes, that it's a, that it's a prime funder of the Taliban, which it, they do make some money off of it, don't get me wrong, but a great portion, probably most of the opium sales in the country actually benefit people we consider our allies in Afghanistan. Um, Karzai's brother 
is suspected of being an opium kingpin. And there are numerous narco warlords that have wormed their way into the government, and we're looking the other way because they're shooting at the right people for us. So the money that's being made in opium in Afghanistan doesn't necessarily fund uh, our, our, our enemies as much as it funds both sides, and, and you'd almost be safe in saying that most of that money goes to people that we consider our allies. That's, you know, and I guess now we have kind of an international coalition over there, supposedly. I mean, who's still over there? I mean, and, and what do you think? I mean, are any of those countries finally getting sick and sick of it and leaving? I heard that some were, but I, I couldn't remember which ones off the top of my head. Well, I mean, remember that this war has caused the collapse of certain European governments <laughs> recently. And, and Britain's population is just not going to stand for an extended continuing commitment in Afghanistan. They've seen this movie before, Up Close and Personal, and their population is really pushing their politicians to get out soon. The Canadians, I believe, are also leaving. I mean, there are, you know, there are several countries still there, but the ones that are there have strict limitations on what kinds of missions they will do, and the overwhelming majority of folks that are over there in a military capacity, or at least a large plurality, are Americans. This is an American-dominant force over there. And that's not even counting the number of private American contractors we have over there. We have an enormous amount of paid military and security contractors there that, that inflate that number that makes it a, a, an American-dominated force even more. Yeah, for sure. You know, and... You know, it's it's one of the things about this war, I think, is that, you know, we really do focus a lot on Iraq in the media, and you don't really hear as much about Afghanistan. You know, I mean, it's uh, until recently, you know, it's like, uh, until I watched your film, there were a lot of aspects about Afghanistan I had not even considered. I've been very fixated in Iraq, and it almost makes you wonder if, you know, it, it's kind of like a game of keep away, like they don't want us to know what's going on over there. And like the you know, there is one question that I, I wonder about, though, and it makes me wonder if there's going to have to be a better solution, is that I, yeah, I don't know, obviously I don't know that American soldiers' presence is going to help the situation with women over there, yeah. but, but I don't think us just picking up and taking off without figuring out another solution is a good idea either, because the regime that would probably move back in would probably just, I mean, like, if they're having enough trouble, even, uh, even when we're there, instituting policies that are going to protect these women, I mean, what other solutions do we have? I mean, could we offer them asylum? Do we get them out of that country? I mean, I, I don't know. I just the stuff I see over there absolutely terrifies me. The the acid attacks and all that. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I know that that stuff is usually overblown. But even your even your uh, documentary, you know, kind of pointed out that the regime that tends to be in charge over there is one that that practices that kind of extremism. Absolutely, and I, and I, let's not minimize this this difficulty, right? I mean, it, it's no secret that the Taliban were absolutely hostile to the rights of women. But what's often overlooked in this conversation is the folks that are elected to office in Afghanistan are also similarly hostile to the rights of women. And in some cases, some groups in Afghanistan who fight for women's rights have characterized the situation as being cosmetically different, but substantially the same uh, at least in the level of violence against women. Women used to be, this is a quote from a woman who works for 
the Revolutionary Association of, of Women of Afghanistan, RAWA for short, she said a couple of years ago that when you went out in the street when the Taliban were there and you weren't properly dressed, you used to be beaten, but now you're just raped. And right. she went so far as to call the Karzai government uh, the rule of the rapist. And what came up, we were at Netroots Nation this last weekend, and there was an excellent panel there put on by Darcy Burner, and it was attended by a couple of folks from places like the Center, on American Pro- Center for American Progress. But one of, the, one of the panelists was Matthew Ho, who you remember resigned his commission as, a, as the head civilian official in Zabul province over his disagreement with the American war policy there. And the point that Matthew made that was pretty striking was that, you know, this is a, this is a, a facet of certain elements of the culture there. And if, and if you're going to say that we have, that the reason, the primary reason that we're going to invade and stay in Afghanistan is to try to change that, then you're saying that we should go to war to change other people's cultures. And I don't think that's an idea that Americans are going to support. We talked to a lot of journalists over there who will tell you horrifying stories of things that happen in government-controlled areas. And, and there, there are a lot of ways in which the Afghanistan government is similarly hostile, to, the one that we support is similarly hostile to the rights of women. I mean, you remember this Shia personal status law that got such... Uh, huge international attention and outcry that basically legalized rape in certain sections of the population within a marriage. And because of the international outcry, that law was watered down to allow men to, instead of just outright rape a woman, to allow them to withhold food from her until she had sex with them. And that's a pretty blatant violation of even the Kabul government's uh, own constitutional guarantees that we're supposed to protect the rights of women. And there's another example of a law that, that on its surface doesn't seem like it specifically harms women, but it absolutely does. It's this amnesty law that some of the warlords that got themselves elected to parliament got passed that basically excuses war crimes committed before they reconciled with the government. And the reason that's important is that often those crimes targeted women. And you've basically set up a situation where people can be estranged from the government and commit any crimes they want against women. And as long as they go through the reconciliation process, those crimes will be excused. So you're creating some perverse incentives there. But one of the people we've talked to when, if you watch the the segment on women there, is a woman named Orzala Ashraf, who works for one of the most well-respected women's organizations in Afghanistan, the Afghan Women's Network. And she puts it very well. She says, you can't liberate me. Only I can liberate me. And, and she's pointing out that what's done in a society like that, trying to impose social change from the barrel of a gun, will always be artificial. And when folks say that we need to keep our troops in the country to protect the women of Afghanistan, I think that's coming from a, a place of good faith. I do, I do recognize that. But it also is not admitting that women in Afghanistan can organize themselves and that when they do that, they would have power. And um, I hate to keep rambling about this, but this is kind of a a thing that I'm pretty interested in. There's a a report out by Human Rights Watch called the $10 Taliban, and it focuses on this particular problem. And every woman interviewed for that 
report wants a negotiated settlement to the conflict. They want this war to end. But one of the things that they point out is that the Afghan government often participates in tokenism when it comes to women's rights and puts women on panels that doesn't give them any substantial voice when it comes to actually making decisions. And one of the things, the things that they want done as the United States begins to withdraw, when this reconciliation process occurs, they want women to have actual decision-making voices on that process, and they want justice. They want this amnesty law repealed, and they want the Shia personal status law repealed, and they want to be able to have political institutions that they can utilize to defend themselves, because otherwise what's going to happen is we're going to stay there until we think it's fine, we're not going to pay attention to supporting the capacity of women's organizations that are trying to build political power. And the moment we leave, the warlords that have elected themselves to parliament that are constantly trying to shove through the back door these Taliban-era type restrictions on the rights of women, they're the ones that are going to have the guns, they're going to have the political organizations, they're going to have the capacity built on the ground to be able to roll back those protections. I mean, just this year you've seen those elements in the Afghan parliament that we're there to die for and to protect with our money and guns, members of that parliament are constantly peppering the parliament with these regressive pieces of legislation because that, because what we've done in Afghanistan is empower really regressive actors as long as they're willing to shoot at the right people. So you're absolutely right that we can't just ignore this issue as we begin to pull down. But the worst thing for women of Afghanistan and for anyone in Afghanistan right now is the fact that there's bullets and bombs in their air around them. And if right. we want women in Afghanistan to have rights, the first right that they need to have is the right to be able to walk down the street without being killed by a stray bullet. And, and I think there are lots of things we can do to support that, but we have to also understand that unless we support um, and pay attention to the rights of women and their ability to, to organize politically and support those capacities that we're building a, a sandcastle there that's going to get washed away. And just to, to wrap up my thoughts on that, I, I, folks that are supporting the president's policy, thinking that what they're doing is supporting women's rights, ought to go back and read that speech he gave at West Point in December and count how many times he mentioned the words women's rights. Now, I'll make this easy for him. He didn't mention it at all in a 35-minute speech. Now, I'm not saying President Obama doesn't care about the rights of women in Afghanistan, but it was clearly not part of the strategic rationale for our policy. He had 35 minutes, and he talked about a lot of issues, and women's rights wasn't one of them. You know, that's, you know, and that's actually something that I wanted to bring up, you know, because I, I don't want my listeners to think I'm a sap enough to believe that that has anything to do with why we went over there. It's oh, just, sure, sure. It's just like, it's just like the, the Kurds, you know, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden, I remember this, this argument that just made me, Hannity is one of the uh, journalists that just makes me want to smack them, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, I understand that. <laughs> and, uh, and at any point, you know, he's arguing with Ron Paul again, and, you know, he's like, you know, He's, because I read, you know, Ron Paul's speaking out against invading Iraq, and he's like, you know, you, you want to let that guy gas those Kurds? You know, we couldn't do that. that you know, that, that's immoral. We shouldn't just let him do that. And Ron Paul looks at him, he's like, that was back in the 80s. We didn't care about it then. Why do we suddenly care about it now? You know, that was like, our gas. <laughs> and then he says, too, he is, he's like, we gave him the gas. We gave him the gas that he used on the Kurds. You know, and it's not to say that Ron Paul supported that action. What he was going getting at, though, was that to think that, 
we're going to go get Saddam now because he gassed the Kurds back in the 80s is silly. You know, and it's, it's, I don't think that anybody I – mean, that's something actually I've learned because um, another film, a, a show I did recently was about the book Addicted to War. Have you ever read that? I have, actually. Yeah, yeah we, we, we had the publisher on our show, and uh, I'm going to get the author eventually, but he's out of the country right now. But um, in any case, you know, it, it pointed out that it, you, what, the, the pattern really is money. You know, if there's no money to be made somewhere, we don't really care about it. You know, yeah. there's, there's not really money to be made in Darfur, so we don't care about those human rights violations. But the human rights violations in countries where there's lots of money to be made, well, we're really interested in those. You know, and it's, it's amazing how that stuff, all, you know, it's like Somalia. We didn't really commit ourselves very well there. And if you've studied that conflict at all, we didn't even give the soldiers anything sufficient to achieve their goal. It was just kind of a show to say, look, the United States, yeah, they engage in, you know, in, in warfare sometimes to protect innocent people and all that. And, you know, it was a terrible failure, obviously, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which being that, you know, as I said, they didn't get the equipment that would have been necessary to do the job they were given. It doesn't change the fact, though, that it's, it's, it's all just a dog and pony show. You can't get the, this country to go to war unless there's money being made. You know, and that's, it, yeah. you, you find that everywhere. And it's mostly because, you know, as Roosevelt, was it, no, it wasn't Roosevelt, I'm sorry. It was, um, now I'm going to forget this. It's going to humiliate me. But uh, uh, <laughs> he was in the f- beginning of the film, Why We Fight. And he, he coined the term. Yeah, he coined the term military industrial complex. Because he saw the rise of the military-industrial complex, and he was ex-military, they couldn't pull the wolves over his eyes. He was a general, you know, and he watched as they snuck in and tried to influence policy based on their need to make money, you know, tried to convince him that they needed certain technologies. That he, being a general who just got out of World War II, was like, "We don't need that. What are you talking about?" You know, and they did, they did, but they couldn't get rid of him because he was a war hero. So, you know, but um, you know, it's. And then, you know, you think that it's a recent problem, and then, you know, the book Addicted to War goes all the way back to the Native American conflicts, and, you know, the, you know the, we wanted their land, so we took it, and then I've, you know, I've argued people with that. They say, well, the Natives were attacking us, you know, because the Natives were the terrorists back then, and, <laughs> you know, supposedly, and I was like, well, you know what the Trail of Tears was about was kicking the Cherokee off of their land, and the Cherokee weren't attacking anybody. They, in fact, had civilized themselves, made a constitution where wearing like you know modern clothing and we're just hoping to trade tea and tobacco with everybody they they weren't hurting anybody but they had land that we wanted and so therefore they had to go you know it's yeah yeah and i mean you think about one of my i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off go ahead go ahead i just want to say you know this is going to be a pop culture reference a little bit but one of my favorite movies is the green mile which is this you know if you've seen it you know there's a quote at the end where um, one of the protagonists is talking about why he's so sad, and he's saying that um, people everywhere use other people's love to kill them. And and what he's getting at is that there are people in the world who use other folks' good faith concern about other human beings to manipulate them into participating in things that that are very hostile to the well-being of the people involved, but because they're couched in terms of things that they care about, how can you say no? Like the, like the rights of women in Afghanistan. Who doesn't want women in Afghanistan to have political equality? Everyone wants that. But if you think that's why we're in Afghanistan, I don't think that you – I'm not saying you. I'm saying right, you. Know, right. you. 
I don't think you remember the tenor of the weeks following September 11th. That had nothing to do with the rights of the men in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, we were so angry at that point that we went, we were able to be manipulated in the war with Iraq that had nothing to do with it because Afghanistan apparently wasn't putting up enough of a fight for us. And we still had to kind of work it out. I mean, I think there was that kind of dynamic that took on this country that we were so angry and so shocked by what had happened. But when, when people who are arguing that we should go into a neighborhood and do house-by-house house searches in the way they did it in Fallujah and, and are going to try to say that what happened there was for on, on the Iraqis' behalf, I, I'm deeply skeptical of those claims. And I know there are folks that want to believe it and that have a hard time distinguishing the, the definitions of the words American and good. Those two things often overlap, but not always. And we want to think that everything that our country does is good. But to think that we're in Afghanistan to support the political rights of women, there are folks in Afghanistan who are there for that, but that's not what our, our political leaders have 100,000-plus troops parked over there to do. That's just that's not what we're there to do. It's just pretty PR. You know, that's, yeah. it's, that's really it. And, it's, you know, there's actually another film, and I've brought this up more than once, so I won't elaborate it too much on this show, but um, it's called Meeting Resistance. Have you ever seen that film? I've not, no. Oh, wow. That film really, that, that's another film that really humanized uh, the resistance over there. And I've also watched a documentary put together by the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which yeah. is called um, Bloody Contracts. Um, and it explains, you know, it, it pointed out, you know, it's like, well, the reason why we burned those three men is because they were from Blackwater. And here's a video that Blackwater put up on YouTube because they thought it would be funny of Blackwater driving down an you know, Iraqi street shooting random people for no apparent reason. You know, it's like, you know, and it, it, it really made me think. It challenged me to think. I was like, wow, I'm so getting on the terrorist watch list or just downloading this stupid thing. But <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know, it, it really put that into perspective, people. I mean, Ron Paul says this all the time, but do you ever really think about it? There's this group of jerks that you're, you know, that some other government hired to drive down your street, and they're randomly shooting people in their cars while listening to country music and laughing. You know, with that, you know, that's, you know, that's what they, you know, Al, you know, Al Qaeda in Iraq had to say. You want to know what we're doing or why we're doing it? This is why we're doing it. You know, you, you drive yeah. down our streets, you shoot randomly at our people. We catch you. We're gonna burn you to death. And I you think know, that's that, extreme, but it's it's people don't think about it like that. Yeah, that incident actually was a really interesting, um, in, a, in a very morbid way, an interesting case study in how the military spins things. I remember reading the quotes from the guy who I can't remember his name, but he was the PR guy that the coalition trotted out to talk about this and what those guys were doing there. And we actually have. Um, at Brave New Foundation, a movie called Iraq for Sale that opens talking to those folks' families. But when, when the PR guys uh, were deployed to explain that incident, they were very conscious. Remember, at that time, to an average American, this was before you know, we were in Iraq for you know, almost a decade at, that, you know, at this point. But that was when the word contractor made people think of hard hats and tool belts. Right. And they, they got, used the word contractor to make us think that they just killed three, like, you know. Yeah, got Bob the Builder. Right? That's what I thought the first time I heard yeah. it. I was like, oh, man, they killed some construction workers? That sucks. <laughs> yeah, and, and the military actually used, they, they, they said things like, 
they killed these contractors. Uh, and yeah, there's lots of, const- of, of things that need to be rebuilt there. Mm-hmm. They were very conscious about using language that would make you make the leap to construction work. But right. those, those guys were, those were uh, uh, Blackwater contractors, and they were, um, I mean, they were attacked because of the work that, that Blackwater was doing. And, you know, obviously there was some incentive there to, to set off a chain reaction there on, on, on other folks' part. But, you know, if you watch Iraq for sale, you can see the mothers uh, of those contractors who are just furious at Blackwater right. for, for taking their kids into that situation and who, who spend a lot of time now working against them, working against Blackwater, uh, to try to get them shut down and out of out of uh, out of the taxpayer's pocketbook. And the really sad thing about it is that when because I've seen that film, um, you know, and I actually I think it's on my must see TV list on my website actually. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, and um, it's uh, the, they they also humanize those particular guys. That's the thing that's so tough. It's like you know, not everybody in Blackwater is a bad guy. A lot of them are just people trying to make ends meet. They happen to be soldiers and it's their only skill set. So they go over there because then they can only, you know, they could serve for like a month and be back with their family and have enough money to take care of them. So it's like, it's not, that's why I was think it was so sad. It's the likelihood is those three guys probably had nothing to do with the jerks who were driving down the street, shooting people. But you know, it's, that's one of the problems with independent contractors, you know, you know, mercenaries in war is it's no way, there's no way to keep track of, you know, who's doing what. And then when somebody does something wrong, they just leave. You know, they just leave the country. Yeah. I don't know if it was your film that exposed that. I think it might have been Iraq for Sale. But I remember watching a, you know, a hearing with Congress. This congresswoman is trying to get this Blackwater guy to fess up and be like, so what did you do about this man who randomly shot, you know, this Iraqi, you know, secret serviceman or their, their equivalent? Like, I guess he was a guard yeah. for one of them. And he, he just kept evading the question. And she's like, wait a minute. He did this illegal act and you don't even know where he is? He's like, well, it's not really our policy to, to keep track of people who do stuff like that. I'm like, what? Are you kidding yeah. me? And, and they, they have repeatedly they removed someone from the country for doing something like that, right? But they'll repeatedly reassign them back to the country. Right. And, and under a different duty or something like that. Or they'll send people over there that have expressly said that they're there to kill, quote, unquote, ragheads. Right. There's no, there's literally almost nothing that that company will do, will not do to make a buck. I mean, we're short of, of a huge gallery of super or super villains in the world, but the folks running Blackwater are pretty close to being like on the Lex Luthor list. And you know, that that actually brings us back to that religion thing. I got a YouTube video of like the the CEO of Blackwater comparing. Blackwater to the, the the Templar Crusaders fighting the you know the the um, Arabs. I was you know, that, that was that so hates, chilling, but not in the way that he thinks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he they've got this idea that, and I think Eric Prince has even said before that he either him or someone near him thought of what they were doing as a religious crusade, and that may be the quote that you're referring to. But I mean, but again, you want to talk about a conflict that was clothed in religion that, that was actually about a lot of money. The Crusades are a pretty good example. <laughs> no, they actually, they really are. They yeah, really and, are. And, and I think that, you know, we, we look at Blackwater today and they're, and they're using this kind of rhetoric, and I think it really points up the lack of political courage and the corruption among certain factions in Congress that people like that can be 
so explicit about what their agenda is and so just cavalier about the way that they affect people in whose homes they're working and can make these egregious, awful statements about the people that they're supposedly there to help and protect. And Congress can't pass something called the Stop Outsourcing Security Act that says that, it, that essential government functions like shooting people ought not be done for profit. Like that, that, I, I saw, I think it was the Young Republicans were going to have their fundraiser out at uh, the Blackwater headquarters. And wow. I thought that was extremely unfortunate. And I, you can really tell that there's been some effort done on the part of Blackwater and their cohorts to really romanticize what they're doing. But in reality, they're taking advantage of people's profit motive and putting them in situations where bad things are going to happen. And in many cases, looking the other way when some of the worst elements in our society get a gun and do bad things with them. And that's, you know, that when we go back to Vietnam, have you ever seen American Apocalypse? Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That, that movie messed me up so bad. I, I can't even look at Vietnam the same way ever again after watching that film. And it, it's all the same thing, you know. And then I went back and read the book War as a Racket by General Smedley Butler. Oh, yeah. And, and that was before World War II, and it was more of the same. You know, I mean, that's uh, one of the things about – that book, uh, Addicted to War, has a lot of quotes from Smedley Butler in it that weren't in War as a Racket because they were just quotes from him when he was running for Congress, you know, and the various things that he had to do. And they show a picture of an American soldier standing on top of a pile of bones of Filipinos, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, was, it looked like a Holocaust picture. But it wasn't Germans killing Jews. It was American soldiers killing Filipinos who thought maybe they should have their own land rights and that maybe big corporations shouldn't own their land. I'm pretty sure Teddy Roosevelt sent them congratulations for some of those atrocities. That that was actually one of the first counterinsurgencies that the American people were involved in. And when you look at the counterinsurgency field manual that's guiding the policy in Afghanistan right now, you should really pay attention to the, the places that they call success. Places like El Salvador are referred to as successful counterinsurgencies. And I think Folks who think that we're there for humanitarian purposes should remember the name Oscar Romero. Right. Actually, I think he got brought up in that book, too. And, it's, you know, and then we write songs about them. You know, like, um, another, another thing, that book that they put up, they like, you know, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. They still sing that song. And, <laughs> and in the book, and in the book in about you know they, they, that he made, it, it points out where all those places were and what those conflicts were about. We're actually down to the last 90 seconds of a live broadcast. Would, would you be uh, willing to stay on a little longer and ask, answer a few more questions? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Well, for those of you who are listening to the live broadcast, you will still be able to hear the rest of this on the archive. Please visit, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, and consider your donation to keep, uh, keep us on the air. Um, and you can check out some of the films that we've mentioned on my must-see TV list. And um, please make sure you check out Rethink Afghanistan. It's an excellent film. And um, we'll continue from here. And uh, for those of you listening live, when it cuts off, you'll still be able to hear all of this later on the, on the archive. It usually takes about 15 minutes after we're finally actually done with the conversation before the archive is available. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's like we, we, we sing stories about them. or sorry, song, songs about them. You know, and I, I was never aware of what everything was being referred to in the Marine fight song. You know, yeah, I mean, you think the halls of Montezuma. 
So does it just mean that they're able to go to these places? Is it just to say, you know, they'll go? No, no. When you read the book Addicted to War, you know, Smedley explains what all those were. You know, that this is this is where we went and, uh, you know, and killed people for fruit rights, and this is where we went to, you know, kill people for sugarcane rights, and this is where we went to kill people for oil rights. You know, he details it all, and. It's, it was really, you know, another thing that was really moving about that book was how, how similar it was. He, he describes so many things in his own book, meaning this is Smedley Butler's book, you know, about ways that war profiteers made ridiculous money. Like there was this bolt that one of these companies manufactured that was actually, they, they put it on everything, but, they, but it was not really that useful. And because they, but they designed it that way so that it would take a special wrench and in order to be sure that everybody could work on everything, they all had to buy this special wrench. It was something that was intentionally designed to be sure that you had to make this damn wrench. Like hundreds of thousands of dollars, which were way more equivalent back then, were spent on this wrench, and most of them never even got used. You know, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. I'm just sitting there with my mouth open as I was reading this book. We actually did a radio show where we read the book and discussed it, and I just could, I was like, wow, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, it was Halliburton and KBR all over again, but it was the past. This is before World War II. If, if it was written today, there would be a, a section about how they made sure that every piece of that special wrench was made in all 435 congressional districts in the United States so that that wrench could never be retired. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're very good at that in the United States of distributing production facilities so that every time you try to cut a defense project like the F-35, that it suddenly you're a job killer in half the congressional districts in the country. I mean, that, that's something that a lot of people don't know about Eisenhower's speech that you mentioned earlier was it originally said the military-industrial-congressional complex. <laughs> and, and, and that is absolutely true. I mean, you want to see the, the dirtiest knife fights in Congress, go watch the, the internal snipings over who's going to build that refueling tanker for the, for the Air Force. You've got Boeing and Airbus and a couple of other countries, and they are involved in an intense fight behind the scenes in Congress. And there are staffers there who mean well, but they're essentially advocating for their preferred defense contractor and pitching it as a job thing for the district, which it is, but when they fight that way, they're just perpetuating the system. It's really, it's really kind of egregious. You know, and that's, it's one of the reasons why uh, Jacques Fresco, the progenitor of the Venus Project, actually the guy that I, I have him on my show all the time, my radio show is mostly about that topic, but we talk about war a lot because we feel that the monetary system is directly linked to it, and, you know, he pointed out, because he was involved in uh, World War II, uh, he helped design certain parts of aircraft that would end up getting, uh, he was just trying to design to help people, and, you know, they would end up getting patented by somebody, and then they'd be millionaires off of it. And he just handed them the idea for free, because he thought that ideas should be like that. If you have something that's going to make mankind better, you should just give it away. Yeah. In any case, he said, you know, if you want to have war, I think the best way to make sure we don't have a lot of war is uh, the moment a country declares war, Every single citizen, including all of the rich, all of the congressmen, all of the, you know, everybody in the cabinet, yeah. and the president himself can all be, you know, they're all going to get conscripted, and they're all going to be sent to war. 
and every bit of production will be nationalized so that nobody makes any profit. You, you see how few wars you're going to get into then. It's basically his attitude about it. I mean, it's like, it was one of the things that occurred to me when I was watching the movie 300, of all things. You know, here you have the king, you know, who, rather than, you know, uh, sending off all the poor in his country to war, he decides to go and be on the front line to defend his country, you know. And that, of course, then, you know, chain reminds me into something else. When I was watching the film Independence Day, sure. the most unrealistic thing about Independence Day was not the aliens. <laughs> It was not, you know, it was not the aliens. It was not the crazy maneuvers they were doing in F-18s that aren't possible. It was the president that actually got in an airplane and risked his life to protect his country while he was president. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you think, you think George Bush had that scene in mind when he was landing on the deck of the aircraft carrier? Do you think he was thinking about blowing up aliens on the way in? I think he probably was. <laughs> yes, I, I imagine he did. That's very true, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting because um, people are not, you know, that's, that's one of the things about militainment, and you really should watch that film, and I'll I'll make sure that you get a link to it. But thank you. Militainment uh, goes over how they brainwash us into not only supporting the war, but how the media can turn it into an attraction to make money. And to make it, you know, like it is in the war starts to compete with things like the Oscars, you know, like for ratings, they turn it into a rating scheme. And, you know, he talks about all the various ways they use advertising and, you know, things like that, you know, advertising techniques, meaning that news agencies do this because they know that they can make a lot more money and get more viewership when we're at war. And, you know, like, you know how he pointed out, for example, those, those really sleek animated like you know pictures of the various weapons you know and how they use those sound effects like whoosh you know as they bring the apache onto the screen and you know they describe all of the stuff the apache helicopter can do and you know it's it's to like make you feel like you're watching like you're playing a video game you know when you're watching the news well if you if you go to just the air force's website right now Mm -hmm. uh you can see how they've taken the idea of killing people with robots in the sky while sitting in an air-conditioned room in Nevada um, is, is fun. There are games where you can on that site where you can get on and practice blowing things up from a reaper. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about that, the, the Air Force and the other armed services are legally barred from explicitly recruiting minors. Mm-hmm. But that's just not the case. American Army, for example, Mick Terse in the book The Complex has a great chapter just on how the game America's Army, that's one of the most popular multiplayer online games right now, is an explicitly public-private partnership over the years that's a straight-up recruiting tool for the U.S. Army. And it's absolutely designed to grab and hook kids who are interested in video games into becoming soldiers for the U.S. Army. And that is one of the most dangerous things. Um, I mean, video games in general are kind of a Skinner box that teaches you that, you know, violence, that kind of desensitizes you to violence and prepares you to kill reflexively in certain ways. But when you think about having a game where you can run around safe and pretend to go gun down Saddam, it's pretty, it's pretty insidious, and it should frighten a lot of people, I think. You know, that's actually something that, uh, ironically, this comes back to the, the comic book world, uh, the character Captain America was originally 
you know, and ironically, I'm a comic book fan, so I still, you know, I like the character Captain America, but one of the reasons that I like him is because of the way he came back. But when, when you get started, you go back to the very first issue of Captain America, you've got Captain America on the front cover punching Adolf Hitler in the face, because that's the era in which uh, Captain America was created. And the reason that it was interesting was that they brought this character back after deep sixing him for so long, and then he got to be this guy who came from a time when everybody loved their government and, you know, everybody thought that the, you know, that the United States was always right. And what made the story compelling for me was that he was finding out this was just not the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, as a character, it haunted him all the time because he was like a relic. He came from the, you know, the days when, you know, the world war two and all the patriotism at the height and people were, you know, uh, uh, volunteering because it was a righteous cause and, you know, and eventually uh, they did something like, you know, that was basically a, a violation of civil rights. They wanted all, they wanted to force all the people with superpowers into the military. And Captain America, of course, uh, basically uh, he started a rebellion. He's like, there's no way. That's you know, that's not constitutional. You can't do that. You know, and and um, then they ended up killing off the character for a while. They they changed their mind. But I remember reading what the author said as to why he did it. And he said, well, um, there were two different kinds of Captain America fans. He's like the old school, really patriotic types. And, you know, the ones who are more into my stories about how Captain America was finding out that America wasn't really what he thought it was, at least not now. And he said that basically, you know, they, they, it was either that they wanted to see on the front cover Captain America on the cover punching George Bush in the face or on the cover punching Saddam Hussein in the face. And yeah. <laughs> And he couldn't keep both of them happy, you know. Um, and yeah. some of these people, like especially the really patriotic ones, got really into it. You know, they they get really upset with him, you know, if if Captain America wasn't patriotic enough. And you know, that's an example of how you know you talk about marketing the kids. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, you know, I brought this up for the militainment show. We're gonna bring it up again now, just for the sake of conversation. Was, uh, I, you know, I go back sometimes because uh, you know one of the things Jacques Fresco talks about is studying, you know, like. So how you were brought up and what influences you had as a child, because he longly, he very much believed that environment has a lot to do with shaping who you are. And I went back and watched this film I had watched a lot when I was a kid called The Boy Who Could Fly. And um, if you've ever seen this film, um, the, the point that was relevant about it was that the, the, the main character, the, the heroine character, basically was uh, you know, a, a young girl who was taking care of this boy who seemed to be kind of autistic and you know, there were rumors he could fly. The relevant point, though, was that her, her younger brother was totally G.I. Joe'd out, you know, just wore camouflage everywhere, played with all this action figures, you know, his big wheel that he had. Of course, it had to be a G.I. Joe big wheel, you know, and, yeah. you know, and I look at that movie now and I kind of laugh. I'm like, man, I'm glad my kids aren't like that. And then I sat back and thought for a minute, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, like, wait. I, I, I was kind of like that when I was a kid for a long time, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and that's because it's something we were talking about earlier. It's, it's easy to grow up in the United States and come out with a sense that confuses the word American with the word good. And I'm not, I'm not at all saying that there aren't great things about the United States. It's just that you have to be able to keep those two things uh, distinct in your mind so that you can be a, a a person who's an aware citizen and can be vigilant for. Um, the defense of the actual things that make the United States great. There's some of the ideas enshrined in the Constitution and 
and not confuse that with the particular activities of the government at the time. You know, um, to kind of this is a point I had thought about earlier about bringing up, and I'm going to bring it up again I, because I just got done bringing this up actually with the guy who made Millotainment. But did you watch the movie The Green Zone? I don't think no, I didn't do that. I didn't watch that. Well, you know what? It, it really shocked me about that film because it had you know big actors in it and all that big budget. I figured it was going to be a you know, kind of a pro-Iraq war movie. And in fact, I was, I left the theater stunned because it was like a, it was almost like a dramatization of no end in sight. It absolutely personified everything they had done wrong in the Iraq war. Um, right. You know, and uh, the main character, Matt Damon's character spends the whole movie trying to chase down the truth about, you know, the bad intelligence and all that other stuff they were given to try to find these weapons of mass destruction and, um, you know, and the reason that I brought that up is that we were thinking, you know, that there are elements in Hollywood that don't necessarily agree with all of this and that they're finding subtle ways to send us messages. That, that message wasn't subtle at all. I, I left yeah. the theater just going, wow, I can't believe that film was even allowed to be made. But, um, but it's, we, the reason that it was brought up was that how, there are certain deals you can get with the military if you will feature them in a very positive light, which is the reason the Michael Bay Transformers films have soldiers all over them. You know, it's because it gets you free equipment and access to things like aircraft carriers and stuff like that that you won't get if you don't do that. Um, and in any case, um, it it made me wonder, you know, because they're remaking that film Red Dawn. Uh, the film. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're they're filming it mostly here in Michigan. They're remaking Red Dawn, and I was wondering if maybe you know because that film originally really kind of brought it home to you, like you know these people may attack us and. This may happen, and you know, in the new Red Dawn, it's not Russia; it's going to be China that's invading and taking over our country. And I'm wondering if maybe the filmmakers of that film might be thinking about sending a subtle message of, "Hey, you know, what's it like when a big country in, invades your country and starts bombing your streets and killing your kids and, you know, killing your family members? You know, is how are you going to react? Are you going to just take that?" And what I'm hoping is that, on in my own way, I'll be able to spin that in a direction of now think about what that must be like for other countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, definitely. Um, I'd not heard that we're going to release that again. That actually makes me chuckle a little bit because the first one was all right, but it wasn't you know epic filmmaking. <laughs> right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of uh, messages being sent like that. I mean, even. Even a show like Battlestar Galactica, which I enjoyed very much, but you could tell it was a definite, I thought, um, conservative bent to the story that was told. But there was a, there was half of the season that pit the humans in the role of insurgents and made very overt references with the way they characterized the people to people like uh, uh, Moa Omar and and leaders of the Taliban. And, and I think there are elements that will say no to that kind of, um, I don't know, symbiotic relationship with, with the military when it comes to entertainment. But, I, and I think that those, that those kinds of works in popular culture are, are really essential to get us to kind of step back and think about what we're doing in places like Afghanistan. Because it, sometimes it takes kind of like the Watchmen, I know you're a comic book fan, mm-hmm. it takes a layer of fantasy to be able to make it comfortable to really talk about the really controversial and the really dark elements um, of, of what's going on in somebody's country at the time. And so if you can put that kind of separation between straight-up reality and something kind of fun, 
you can really get into those issues a little bit better. Well, like, you know, uh, like I'm going to quote this again, and I ironically said this during the Militainment show too, is from B for Vendetta, you know, artists use lies to tell the truth. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, I couldn't get my friends to watch, say, uh, you know, uh, No End in Sight, but I might be able to get them to watch The Green Zone. You know, sure. I, I couldn't get them to watch, you know, you know, 1984, but I might get them to watch a movie like The Matrix, wherein, you know, it's like they're trying to send a poetic message to you about the way society really works, but, that, but, but doing it in such a way that maybe you don't realize that that's what they're doing right away. You know, and you don't find that out until the end. And I still think that Mr. Lucas made the, the, the first three Star Wars films trying to kind of paint a story of, so we got this war, you know, and uh, the equivalent of the insurgents are basically the bad guys. And there are these, there's this group of people, you know, the, you know, the Jedi, you know, <laughs> cough, cough, the Constitution that's going to slowly be, you know, yeah. weakened and torn apart until the evil emperor can take over and, you know... It just, I didn't think that was an accident by any means. Um, but, you know, it's, but I guess, you know, um, what I would like to, you know, give you an opportunity to do now, just make sure I don't forget, you know, sure. give out the URLs for, uh, you know, how these people can, you know, see Rethink Afghanistan and, you know, and, and other works that you guys, I, you guys are doing. Absolutely. Well, you can find our, most of our community on Facebook.com slash Rethink Afghanistan. I actually, I want to plug this for your listeners. We, right before I came on your show, we launched a petition related to the WikiLeaks story that hit the news over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, And the petition is that now that we have this more complete picture of what's going on in Afghanistan, it really points out the fact that we need to end this war and we're going to hold our elected officials accountable. So if you go to facebook.com slash rethink Afghanistan, you can not only sign that petition that you can sign up as a fan and become part of a, a growing, more than 40,000 people are fans at the moment. And we do a continual film series on that site where we put out one to two new short videos a week that keep the information current. And the ones that have been put out most recently feature actual exclusive interviews from Afghanistan to help us counter the spin of the folks who are trying to portray what's going on over there as a humanitarian exercise. Um, but you can also watch all of the segments for free at Rethink, uh, sorry, RethinkAfghanistan.com of the original documentary, and you can actually get a DVD of that documentary there for a donation as well. You know, I've been looking at the various documentaries that you guys have put out, and a lot of them were in my list. And I, I'm actually very happy to have somebody from your organization, you know, on the, you know, on my show. Uh, this actually originally got started because I was hoping to get somebody involved with Outfoxed, uh, oh, oh. talks more on journalism. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, and uh, I hope that I can you know, look forward to a, you know, further partnership with you guys in the future because uh, documentaries are kind of what drives me in this particular movement and it's what I'm you know my actually my internet persona in online radio is VTV and the reason for that is because um, from the movie V for Vendetta there's a part where V takes over the television and there's oh, a, absolutely there's this little VTV icon in the lower right hand corner and that's what my show on Ron Paul radio was about back when I was a Ron Paul guy I it was actually Ron Paul TV we would use the Justin TV technology I'd play a documentary and then we'd talk about the documentary you know, with, with callers and, you know, with people in the chat room and stuff. And, um, you know, and that's uh, basically, um, you know, I, I hope that in the future, really, you guys come out with other great projects like this. Um, 
you know, please feel free to let me know, and I'll be happy to do a show about them. I pretty much haven't been able to find anything on your list so far that I didn't like. Um, and uh, in addition to that, um, you know, if there are any, if there is anybody available from even your older productions who would like to come out, you know, and talk about this, I'd still love to get somebody on at some point about Outfoxed because I know it's a much older film, but you know that that film was so well done about you know pointing out the the, the total this ludicrous nature of the media and 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 Fox in general. Um, well, we'll definitely uh, uh, see if we can dig somebody up that worked on that production and, and get them in touch with you. That would be great. Um, awesome. Now that actually, I'm glad you brought up the WikiLeaks thing because that's kind of a hot item of news, and uh, I, I wanted to go ahead and ask you now. You know, now that we have this information, it's kind of like breaking news. I mean. Uh, do you think that there's enough material there? You guys might want to make another chapter at Rethink Afghanistan? Well, I don't know if we're going to do a whole new segment, um, but we do do, like I said, this continual video series um, that you can tap into at facebook.com slash Rethink Afghanistan, um, where we do, like when I mentioned the Gardez incident, we actually did a series of films, a short ones on that, that, featured original stuff that we got out of Afghanistan working with various journalists and streamers. Um, but, you know, this WikiLeaks release, in one way, the White House is right that this isn't new information. I mean, it's new bits of information, but the pattern isn't new. But what, I, what people really need to keep in mind is the context here. Robert Gibbs, who's the White House spokesman, has been bending over backwards to say that remember now, this is a six-year period that ends at the end of 2009 before President Obama's big escalation strategy was put into effect. But what we know from other reports that are more current, like um, the report that came out recently from the Afghan NGO safety offices, that that six-year period is actually a period of time in which things were better than they are now in terms of the level of violence in Afghanistan. The monthly peak of, of security, of violent security incidents, um, the largest monthly total of the, in 2008, is half what it is so far in 2010. We know that violence has gone up 87% compared to the same period last year, and that's based on the military's own reports. So when Robert Gibbs gets up there and tells people that, oh, but remember, that's before we did all these great things, Things are actually worse now than they were in the period during which WikiLeaks is reporting. Um, but what we will do, and that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because the video that goes along with the petition that we talked about features some of our original interviews with folks on the ground talking about how things are now. And, and we are going to keep hammering away at this, especially with the petition that I mentioned. Um, we're actually targeting the, um, the, the campaign committees for the, both, for the Republicans and the Democrats to make it very clear that there is an electoral peril for people who continue to support pro-war candidates and um, keep voting for this excessive uh, defense, quote-unquote, spending that's killing our economy. So if, if folks plug in there, they can stay current on the information as we make new videos. That's excellent. And, you know, definitely keep doing what you're doing. Um, it's it's been great working with you guys. Uh, Martha was very nice, you know, when I contacted her. And um, and uh, it's I mean, is, is this like I mean, are there different teams for every film, or is it just one team that kind of you know mostly stays together? Or I mean, yeah, tell me yeah. a little bit about your your film company. Sure, there's a few teams, uh, production teams, and that lets us 
do more than one project at once um, in a very efficient way. So there are, there are at least two to three distinct production teams there. Um, I'm kind of a one-man band on a lot of these short uh, We Think Afghanistan videos. I'm actually based out of Austin, and the, um, the actual studio is in Culver City near Los Angeles. Um, and, but we, we have a very neat model. We, we've got down to an, an art, I think, of putting out these two or three minutes online videos and releasing things that way as a way to disseminate the information. But that's really been our distribution model for the last year or two, is to just forego the major studio releases and send the information out as quickly as possible to people through the media. And that's really kind of what we're experimenting with and I think it makes us a little bit different than most film companies. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's, I envy you. I'd, I'd love to be working on documentaries because they are kind of one of my, you know, little, <laughs> I don't want to call it an obsession, but, you know, I, I'm one of the few people I know who, you know, goes and gets some, orders himself some Chinese food and then sits down in front of the television to watch a documentary like somebody else might a good suspense thriller. Well, uh, those that work here really appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, hey, but we're, we're glad to hear that you're enjoying our work. Excellent. Well, you know, that's, it's pretty much like the same thing with my radio show is the reason I try to get it out to as many people as possible is it's not really about self-promotion or any kind of ego thing. It more has to do with the fact that I really work on this really hard and I don't get much out of it. So I, you know, I really hope that I, you know, the more people that are listening, the more I feel galvanized to, to write the next blog or to, you know, to um, get the next guest. Cause in a lot of cases it takes a lot of work. Like I'm, I'm still trying to get, uh, you know, interviews with some people from some corporations that are working in geothermal and alternative energies, and it's it's really hard sometimes because, of course, they got to contact their PR people and evaluate, you know, my show and whether or not it's worth them being on there and all that other stuff. And you know, it's you you've really got to have somewhat of a silver tongue to get some of these high-profile guests and. I actually had set out to get technology-based guests, and instead I got a bunch of filmmakers. <laughs> you know, it's fine. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's great because they're they're enjoying the shows. It's just my my listeners had asked for more technology shows to because that's what basically the Venus Project is all about is using technology to try to eliminate the reasons that people fight at their source as opposed to expecting laws or you know having a bigger military to fix your problems. So. Um, kind of inspirational because we're, we're really into using social media these days to try to promote social change. So I, I admire that push very much. You know, if, you know, maybe at some point, uh, you know, I'll talk to somebody in your company about the idea of, you know, you guys making a film about the Venus project. I think, uh, would actually come in really, you know, it would be really great, a great partnership. You know, we could talk about that at some point off the air, but, uh, sure. um, you know, yeah. it, go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, let's talk about it. That sounds interesting. Well, um, you know, uh, I think we we basically pretty much answered all the questions I wanted to answer. I mean, we talked about the WikiLeaks thing, and uh, that was you know yeah. that was one of the major things that I wanted to make sure I brought up. I'm actually glad you brought it up because I had forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good then, yeah, because it, it's going to be a major story I think for the rest of the week. That's great. Um, you know, uh, and I guess um, have you guys? I mean, uh, I guess the last question I wanted to ask you. I mean, have you had? I mean, any like kind of feedback that that gives you hope that this project is getting out? I mean, what what kind of stuff have you been getting that's galvanizing you? I mean, are are there any congressmen recommending your film, or you know, have, have you guys talked to any of them perhaps to be interviewed? I mean, I guess do you are you getting any kind of feedback that's telling you that this is getting out to people and maybe changing their attitude about Afghanistan? Well, I think if you just watch polling, 
and and you watch the, the enormous shift in people's attitudes uh, in the last month or two against this war, that's been really gratifying. I mean, the cover of Newsweek, I, I'm not saying anything, but I'm just saying that the cover of Newsweek said Rethinking Afghanistan didn't mention us specifically, but it mentioned all of our talking points. Right. And I, what, what, what you get often when you work through social media is that your ideas get out into the, into the public consciousness to the point where folks don't even really get oftentimes where they get the ideas, but you just, you get them out into the ether and folks are able to, to plug into them through conversations with people that they know. And if you look at the shift in public opinion over the last, just say, five months, I mean, I don't want to overstate our impact, but we do, I do think that a lot of what we've seen has been based on the groundwork that was laid with the Rethink Afghanistan project, even back before I got here, um, on the major issues that kind of laid a foundation for progressives to come out and oppose the war, and to have some kind of, of background on the issues that people were using to bludgeon people into war support. Um, we have been working with members of Congress. Um, Alan Grayson has been very helpful. Um, Jan Schakowsky, there are several other members, and I would be, and I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for not mentioning them all, but we, we have worked with a lot of the progressive caucus and seen a lot of encouraging signs there. Um, and so I do, I do think we're getting through. I think people are getting very nervous about supporting this war in public, and that's good because if you're an elected official right now, I think you love this war in public at your peril. That's, you know, that's great, and I, it, it's, it's unfortunate that we have to be what is known as alternative media to bring this kind of news to people's ears, um, and it's, it's, it's sad that, you know, it's, there used to be journalistic integrity. There used to be a time when, you know, the press was a corporate, was the corporate, you know, the corporatocracy and the, the government's worst enemy, yeah. but you couldn't get away with doing anything without having it printed, and, you know, that was back in the day, you know, like you remember, you, you see them in all the movies, the the pesky reporter you can't intimidate who's not gonna who's not gonna leave you alone and he's he won't stop hounding you until you give him the scoop. You just don't have that anymore. Yeah. Know? And it's it's really sad. You know, that it's like in order to do the job for them, I've got to do it essentially. That's what I have to do. I have to get on a blog talk radio show to do this kind of stuff. And that, and that's I get those comments all the time, you know, Gene, you know, that was a great show. That's the kind of stuff I should be hearing when I turn on my FM radio station. And it's it's sad that I got to do it myself, but that's basically the way it is. It's, it's either this or you know, or it doesn't get done, you know. And you know, I want to thank you again for everything that you're doing, um, and uh, I'm sure my listeners thank you as well. Uh, you know, once again, everybody, you know, check out Rethink Afghanistan. Um, you can stay on the line after I disconnect here for a moment. I have a couple of questions I wanted to ask you that are just sure. off the air. And um, absolutely, and thank you for the work you're doing, by the way. I appreciate that, and you guys can also help me a lot just by cross-promoting my show. I, you know, I, I do this stuff, and you know, you know, link. You feel you guys want to link me if you want to use any segment of anything I've ever done. It's it's all basically out there under essentially Creative Commons. I haven't officially licensed it that way, but I don't, you know, I don't mind. So definitely. And in any case, uh, thank you everybody for listening, um, and uh, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, this has been a great show, and um, maybe you should rethink Afghanistan. I'm going to leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.